Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Monday, May 8, 1995. And with the naming of their squads for the first Origin game of the year, New South Wales and Queensland selectors confirmed a stance that had been rumoured since April Fool's Day. Players who signed with Super League would not be considered for state of origin. While New South Wales could draw on a pool of talent that included 12 of the previous year's Kangaroo Tour and some of the most promising young talent in the game, Queensland were in trouble. Premiership winning coach Wayne Bennett was replaced by TV personality Paul Vorton, who was forced to make do with an assortment of journeyman veterans and unheralded rookies. It promised to be a whitewash. The series delivered on that promise in a way that nobody saw coming. This is Queenslander the 17th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Fantastic, mate. How are you? I'm good, especially... What a... Uh, breath of fresh air this week's research has been after 16 (laughs) chapters of bitterness and recrimination this was actually a very pleasurable period of time to go through uplifting even yeah and and it's funny because i mean just to peek behind the curtain when i mapped out the chapters that will make up the first season of this series this was the one that was sitting there that i was like we got to do it but i i'm not really that excited about doing it. And it was only once I went into the research and got all these amazing stories that it really hit me that this is one of the, I'm talking about Queensland's 3-0 victory in the Origin Series, of course. This is one of the great rugby league stories that seems to go untold. It gets told in passing, doesn't get told in depth. And I don't know if it's just like the war, not wanting to talk about it, but I think more should be made of what an incredible feat this was. Well, I've got to say, to quote our oft-quoted reference Rashomon, I... My memories of this are totally different to what I found out during the research. Let's get into it then and unpack the whole story. The announcement to ban Super League players from Origin didn't come officially until those first Origin teams were named. But this is something that had been telegraphed from the start. It was in the ARL's recruitment pitch, the threat of exclusion for anyone who did sign for Super League and the carrot of rep football plus promising the captaincy to about 20 blokes <laughs> if they did sign with the ARL. So from that first weekend, the ARL were in a position where they basically had to go through with only ARL players in rep footy that year. As a kid, I was absolutely disgusted by this move. But looking back on it as an adult, I can see they had to do it. There was genuine argument on both sides. And I think you could make a similar case for why they didn't kick out the teams who signed with Super League, as was threatened in the first place, saying that it was unfair to fans, the TV broadcasters, all the rest of it, it wasn't going to do to have half the teams kicked out. You can make a similar case for Origin, you know, selling tickets, again, TV rights. There's a case that they should have gone on with business as usual and let the court case sort it all out. It's only because of this Queensland miracle that 
this hasn't been looked back on with abject contempt. Yeah, I think you're right. And on that point, it was probably the wrong decision to take at the time, but thank God they did take that step and it proved to be the right decision because of how it turned out. Yeah. It was a major PR victory for the ARL in the end. Absolutely. And as I said, there was no official commandment that selectors couldn't pick Super League players. The funny thing was that everyone knew what was going to be up when the city country teams came out and there were no Super League players selected in either team. But there was no directive coming from the ARL. In fact, country picked two teams, one including Super League players and one not, and then called up the city selectors to see what they did. (laughs) It's very rugby league. And that city country game actually had the effect of making the minds up for some people. So Jason Stevens was uncommitted at that point uh, and went along and signed with Super League because he thought he didn't have a rep future with the ARL once he missed out on City Country with all the Super League players gone. It was quite a big domino, Jason Stevens, at that time. Well, a massive domino for his brother Paul Stevens, <laughs> noted uh, St. George Reserve grader, who uh, he managed to get a nice little signing bonus for Super League as well. Paul Stevens has had some help, hasn't he? <laughs> So when the Origin teams came out, that was as close as we got to an official word that Super League players wouldn't be playing rep footy in the ARL. But even then, it wasn't a commandment. There was talk of picking for the future and we're not banning Super League players. This is just the way we think we're going to go. So even with the team selected, there was no official word that Super League players wouldn't be selected. The language was all about planning for the future and the right of ARL selectors to pick the team that they see fit. John Quayle did come out in the press with a bit more of a vitriolic take pushing the ARL's case saying, why shouldn't the league plan for its future? These players have gone to another competition, been paid millions of dollars to go to another elite competition. Our concern and all we do must be for our own competition. The spirit of origin this year is about players like Brett Dallas who went the opposite way from most of his teammates because he wanted to play for Queensland. Martin Bella said to me the other day, you wait and see how it is when we start talking about the Maroons tradition and how much it means. He's fired up already. So a notable omission, Martin Bella. Yeah. He, he got the everything right with the spirit, but unfortunately it wasn't to include him. Does that mean if Fatty doesn't read him? Well, I, I, he didn't have much left in the tank in 95, to be fair. Great Queenslander. But of course it was Queensland who were going to be more affected by any Super League ban than New South Wales. And in the midst of it came one of the most farcical moments of the whole situation with the QRL when weighing up whether to pick Super League players, thought they could hedge their bets by just picking the Walters brothers. <laughs> like This was actually floated. I'm, I'm, like, I'm assuming debated at board level that this was a way they could get around it. Super League players are banned. But hey, Steve and Kevy, uh, we, we could actually use you. Do you what want about Kerrod? Well, I, you can only have one hooker, right? <laughs> so this was shot down when both Kevin and Steve came out and said, well, we'd love to play Origin, but we're not going to do it if all the rest of our mates are left out. Is that like a tribute to their good blokedness? I think it's more the Queensland mentality, going back to the Ron McCall, if, you know, Barry Gomes all <laughs> reffing it fair dinkum <laughs> kind of administration style. I mean, that would have been the most intriguing move of the whole war <laughs> if the Walters boys got a pass. And so on the players, we, we heard the Walters brothers say they wouldn't play if the rest of the Super League players weren't considered. There was a, a lot of uh, mixed feelings from both sides of the war as to what the right thing to do was. So Paul Harrigan came out and said, 
I think I probably would have made this side anyway, but I know a lot of blokes will be embarrassed to play knowing they're only there because the Super League players weren't allowed to be. They won't be remembered as blokes that played State of Origin, but as blokes that filled in when some players were banned. But this is the thing. Just like the Knights' 97 Premiership victory, everyone pretends that's not the case. Mm. It's a huge black mark on the records for me. Well, I I disagree. We can debate that at the end uh, because obviously we need to put this series into perspective. But I think for a start, Paul Harrigan might have considered who recently cut him a very sizable check before coming out with a statement like that. Uh, at Tigers training, Tim Brusher wasn't putting in at training. Coach Wayne Pierce said, you won't get picked for origin from reserve grade, to which Tim Brusher replied, oh, well, if they don't pick the Super League players. <laughs> but typically, Greg Florimo was on the other side of the argument saying, a blue jumper is a blue jumper regardless. The same thing could result through a player being injured. There's going to be a few opportunities for people now. You have to feel sorry for the fans, but I'm sure everybody involved is going to aim up. That's the great attitude for the players, and and no disrespect to the players that got those jerseys. They can only play what's in front of them. But to me, it's a nightmare. Again, we're saved by what a compelling series it was. We're saved by the result. So logically, you're right. Same as the Knights Premiership. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, you're so right. It, it, It is, but... Both fantastic miracle events. The the Knights one, in hindsight, is more valid because it was the coronation of Joey and he did go on with it yeah. from there. So even, yes, it was half a comp. Yes, the Broncos premiership that year got completely forgotten. By everyone but Walk. Yeah. So the Super League players were understandably upset about being left out. Ricky Stewart in his column in the Rugby League Week saying, when it's fair dinkum, there's no better game of football, but if the whole thing is left to players who normally wouldn't get a look in, it simply will not be the same. And Alan Langer saying, it's like retiring from football in a way. You aren't there anymore. It's disappointing. The ARL obviously doesn't want a bar of Super League players. (laughs) Thanks, Scoot. Yeah, he he got the message. (laughs) And Super League themselves even considered running a game in opposition to State of Origin. So putting on an exhibition game, Brisbane versus Canberra at ANZ Stadium. I'm to glad go that up. didn't happen. <laughs> like, is that the best they can do? Yeah. I, I know their argument is that that's, you know, most of the Origin teams anyway, but... Yeah, I'm glad that didn't happen in hindsight. And from the fan side, similarly mixed messages with 2UE putting a listener poll and getting something like 75% of respondents saying that Super League players should be banned. Other people, you know, asking for refunds. But the ARL saying that on the morning that it was announced, they were flooded with calls saying, we'll have the tickets if people want refunds. So, <laughs> You uh, can never trust a football organization's ticketing and crowd promo. It's, no, exactly. It's always like, man, the tickets are selling like hotcakes and they're giving away 40000 And I don't think 2UE is the most uh, <laughs> bias-free <laughs> survey as, as well. So game one was basically sold out before the teams were even announced. So that wasn't going to be a problem. And as QRL director Ross Livermore said, our legal information is that the tickets are sold under certain conditions, which are printed on the back of each ticket. They make it quite clear you can substitute or change artists. So quite clear there, no refunds. Artists. (laughs) Uh, The big worry was Melbourne, which the MCG was going to host game two. The Sydney and Brisbane games both basically held up. I think they were each about one or 2,000 shy of the previous year's crowd figure. The MCG 30,000 short. 
But I actually think even with the Super League players, there would have been a sizable drop-off yeah. from the year before. It, it's Especially watching it on that ground. You can't do MCG two years in a row. No. It has to be something that's every four or five years. Yeah, and after the first one, and they're watching Ants. Yeah, exactly. They need to forget that memory before you know coming back to it. So let's get to the teams and the picking of the teams. So New South Wales were obviously in a better position. As I said, they had 12 kangaroos to choose from. Paul Sirenen was the 12th who actually missed out in that series. The other 11 playing at least one game of the three. Poor Sirenen, like you said last episode, 94 tour and he's off tap. Yeah. Money end selections. <laughs> and I mean, going into game one, both sides fielded nine debutants. So there's some parity there. New South Wales obviously lost a lot of experience and leadership. But the difference is the debutants they had were aforementioned kangaroo players, the Johns brothers. They had guys that were in line to debut within a year or so anyway, yeah, not yeah. blokes that had just come out of a President's Cup. Yeah, exactly. But that leadership gap was really felt and you can see in the result that they were lacking something. Freddie was made captain uh, and in his words, I wasn't ready for it. Gus Gould advised me that I, along with a couple of other players, was the face of the ARL and I just have to live with it. And Gus later said, you didn't need that at the time and it wasn't fair to you, but you stood up to it. Why wasn't Harrigan captain? It would have made more sense. Absolutely. And what really would have made more sense, and I know hindsight's an easy thing, Jeff Toovey came in for Andrew Johns in game three. You think game one, it might have been a nice bit of experience to have. But I think it comes down to the fact that New South Wales weren't really taking it seriously. Yeah. They were expected to win 40 nil, so you might as well blood yeah. these two young blokes who look the goods. And prior to the effort from Queensland, 100 people out of 100 thought the same thing. Yeah. But perhaps we should read the Blues squad here for the listeners because yeah. it's quite interesting. We've got Tim Brasher, fullback, Rod Wishart, wing, Terry Hill, Paul McGregor, centres, Craig Hancock on the other wing, Matthew and Andrew Johns in the halves, Paul Harrigan, Jim Sedaris, Mark Carroll in the front row. Steve Menzies, Brad Mackay, and Brad Fittler in the back row, and the bench of Florimo, Fairley, Matt Sears, and Adam Muir. Quite a strong side. Yeah. Coached by Phil Gus Gould. Yeah. And you look at that, when we talk about debutants, it's Steve Menzies, Mark Carroll, you know, obviously the Johns brothers, Adam Muir. Craig Hancock played the first game, and that was his only origin experience. Hopawadi came in for game two, and then uh, David Hall for Norths in game three which we'll go to the game two and three teams as we get to them, but it shows you that lack of consistency across the three games for New South Wales. See, I'm saying I don't like the tarnishing of the records, but it's great for guys like David Hall, who were great players, to get a yeah. even a, a tarnished origin jersey. Mm. But let's get back to that experience. So Freddie obviously was had the class, but not maybe the leadership skills that he would develop later. Harrigan would have been a good replacement captain, you'd think. Uh, the Johns brothers coming in. And I still remember that front of the sports page in the Telegraph, the Matthew and Andrew was kids. It was like a full page cover. Do you remember that one? I don't know, but yeah. it sounds cool. Um, and I went back and found it recently and it was, yeah, quite a nice article. And I didn't really know much about the two of them at the time. Uh, you probably knew a lot more being in Newcastle. I was excited for this part of it because like, I was massive fans of both of them. But Matthew was my favorite player back then. Because he was like the older one and yeah. he did a bit more flashy stuff, throwing mm. the ball up to himself, yeah. etc. <laughs> Which he does in this game. And Andrew Johns as well would admit later that he wasn't ready. His quote was, I knew I was nowhere near ready to play at that level. My head was still spinning from the sudden surge into prominence. I just thought he was that confident in his ability that he was ready. 
to hear that's quite shocking. Well, that was the striking thing watching back, how uncharacteristically in their shells both of them played. Yeah. Uh, Andrew especially, but they just didn't offer much and that natural exuberance just wasn't there. It reminds me of that Mike Tyson quote that everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face. Yeah. It's like that's what Queensland did. They come out and just bashed us and all the skill in the world went out at the window at that point. Everyone's like holding on for dear life. And the other thing I thought reading the media in the week leading up to that debut, there was a lot of articles talking about the Johns brothers coming into the side. This was a Steve Mascord column in the Herald. We're not taking Ricky Stewart and Laurie Daly's place. You'll see that repeated in a number of articles. And at some point, does that subconsciously become part yeah. of their game on the night? I think the imposter syndrome has really crept into that. Yeah, exactly. Like it just becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy the more you say it. Yeah. So a lot of the leadership was coming from their coach, Phil Gould, who was and still is New South Wales' most successful coach. This, in fact, was the only Origin series he ever lost. I bet you Gus was just so confident. Well, I mean, and this might have been part of the Blues' strategy in any year, but some unorthodox training methods, which included players engaging in an egg-throwing battle. <laughs> uh, so That could be any <laughs> So Paul McGregor came out and, and said it, it really helped them. He said, it was a lot of fun. You have to mix these things up because there's no value in going into these matches too tense. That kind of lighthearted relief is just as important as anything we do during our 10 days together. Right. I mean, there's a, a century-long history of bonding sessions and all these little exercises. So there's obviously something to it, but I'd like to think an egg-throwing contest <laughs> isn't as important as some of the other things they'd be doing that week. They didn't throw an egg on the field. They laid an egg. <laughs> but that preparation is fine as long as there's no equine-related activities. <laughs> CC Wayne Pierce. <laughs> So let's turn to the other side, Queensland, and we'll start with the coach. And Paul Vorton was put in the position to coach them when Wayne Bennett stepped down. Uh, and he was of the opinion that whatever was going to happen in 1996 and beyond, the Super League players should have been considered. He said, I believe the ARL was morally obliged to have all players available for selection. They owe it to the public who have bought their tickets and to the sponsors of the series who came on board believing it would be the best of the best. Here, here, I think he's 100% right about the moral obligation, but morality went out the window when they were Pearl Harbor. (laughs) (laughs) And so he stepped down, leading to some criticism on the ARL side that Bennett was running scared. And in Phil Gould's book, uh, Ray Cheston writes, Bennett's decision amazed New South Wales and Gould. He was a coach who'd built his reputation on Queensland's achievements. Yet now he was abandoning a Queensland side of such limited proven ability that his guidance and experience would have been essential. He's getting out because the good players aren't available, jokes one New South Wales player. He was with Super League. And, and this wasn't the only quote I saw along these lines. How ridiculous would it have been to have Wayne Bennett coaching... Kevin and Steve Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> coaching the ARL players while the Broncos are twiddling their thumbs at Red Hill. Yeah. like It just wouldn't make any sense for Wayne Bennett to be coaching that team. Preposterous comment. But what Wayne Bennett maybe didn't have to do was to lay the boot in as he did. So a couple of his quotes were, I don't want to be part of anything I don't think is 100% fair dinkum. I don't want to walk into the ground on Origin Night as coach knowing my friends and family have paid $50 to watch a second-rate game. <laughs> And then another quote, I don't want to be part of a farce. 1995, $50 gets you into an Origin game or buy you one CD at Brushes. <laughs> and this was met with 
a rebuttal from team manager Chris Close, who said it was un-Queensland of him. Some of the comments from Wayne at the time I thought were disappointing. Things like, you know, it's a second-rate team and I'm not going to put my hand up to coach a second-rate team. That doesn't really represent what Queensland's about. I thought it's still Queensland and we're still going to have to do our best here. We're still representing the people that live in the state. It's notable to see Bennett stepping out like that when it's not really the Queensland way to turn on their own. As we've come to know with Wayne Bennett, it's kind of his way. (laughs) And so that led us to Paul Vorton being selected coach because when the QRL were weighing up a replacement, one of the key criteria, as Chairman John McDonald said, was it's important we select the person who has the winning formula as a coach at the highest level we can get. (laughs) I remember when they named him, people were incredulous that the bloke from the world's biggest Barbie in the footy show and that catch was going to be coaching like the Joker, the guy that couldn't ski at Persia was going to coach. But I remember reading his book and seeing how much he really loved Queensland. I was thinking, that's really cool. Just on that, and this is entirely serious, do you think riding the heat from that catch pushed him over the line? Like that catch was everywhere. It was inescapable in 95. It made him a bigger star on TV. I don't think it pushed him to the origin (laughs) show somehow. (laughs) But as we mentioned in our first chapter, he was actually being considered in 1994 when Wally Lewis was going to step down. So it didn't come from nowhere. So he'd coached a Brisbane representative team in 91, I think it was, the Brisbane Capitals. See, no one had bought into the origin culture more than him. Bonding sessions, die on the hill with your mate mentality. So within those circles, he wasn't a joke. No. And then I think there are is also the tactical thing from the ARL because he was such a public face of the ARL on the TV, etc. Yeah. It was a good PR move. I love Fatty and still do. So when it got named, I was thinking, oh no, he's going to get massacred and look like a fool, you know. So after the announcement, there was a general air of incredulity and some light mocking of his chances. Chris Anderson coming out and saying, Fatty going into a state of origin coaching job is a bit of a farce. He's never coached before and that makes a joke of it. He's plenty to say in 95, uh, <laughs> Anderson. But as Fatty really had to stress to his team, the bloke you see on TV, that's not me. I'm paid to be a clown on TV, but there's nothing I care more about than Queensland football. Yeah. So that was the attitude he brought in. Uh, we're going to talk more, of course, about his inspirational leadership, but we should give him his due as a rugby league mind. So his reputation as a player was a tireless, hard worker, someone with genuine skills and a smart football brain. Tackling machine. Taking a lot of notes during his playing days and bringing that with him to the coaching role. What was often cited by him and some of his team was the fact that he'd learnt under Bob Fulton and had gained experience that way. And won the comp. But the funny thing about the Bob Fulton relationship is the way it fell out a few years later. And I must say, I didn't realize that they'd fallen out. Oh, didn't you? No. No, it was vitriolic. Yeah. Do you know where that feud is at at the moment? I don't know where it's at now. I think it's still going from where yeah. I know. So it all came to the boil just after the failure of the Northern Eagles and the reclamation of the Manly name. Uh, Fatty was, I believe, chairman of the board at the time. Yeah. Uh, and maybe a bit of a power struggle there, but he broke the cardinal rule of not commenting on the playing abilities of Scott Fulton. <laughs> so he was asked and, and answered the question about what he thought about uh, Scott's abilities and it all fell apart from there. 
we can't be that astute then, can he? Because <laughs> Blind Freddy knows you look after Scott Fulton in Bozo's presence. And that led to Ray Hadley getting out in public against Vorton, taking Bozo's side, leading to a very upset Mrs. Vorton, Paul's mother, calling him up in tears about what Ray Hadley had said about him in public. Uh, and in Fatty's words, my old man got on the phone and said, tell me where to find Hadley. I want to give him one on the chin. <laughs> I said, Dad, you're 75. He said, well, I know who I'd be backing, good old Dad. <laughs> and so with two of their favorite sons falling out, Manly Insiders tried to patch up the relationship, saying it's not good having the two of the club's greatest ever players at each other. That was the quote of one insider. But after a couple of failed attempts, it was reported in the Manly Daily. There was another bid to bring the two warring parties together this week, but it failed to get past first base. The club has decided to forget any further patch-up attempts and get on with life. <laughs> I want to make a comment on Scott Fulton because he's he gets laughed at a fair bit on this podcast. It's like we don't even know him. We barely, no. barely even saw him play. I kind of feel sorry for him to have to wear that mantle of an immortal. Who knows whether he was pushing to be given preferential treatment or whether he'd rather not been involved in it. Yeah, uh, Scott Fulton has become collateral damage in the course of this podcast. But in almost every case, the butt of the joke is Bozo. Yeah. Uh, lobster pots accepted. Yeah. You know, he, he's got to wear that one. <laughs> First time they did <laughs> But so regardless of where that relationship ended up, in 95 it was pretty strong. And Fatty went into the series thinking that he could take those lessons he learned from Bozo and turn it into a winning formula. But let's not kid ourselves. When you think of Paul Vorton's coaching, it's not about tactics or game plan. It is his ability to inspire and motivate. So his friend Johnny Gibbs came out and said that he is aware that every player is a completely different personality and he coaches two individuals, which that's coaching 101, but it's a very unique skill that not a lot of coaches actually have. Quite a few coaches lose the dressing room by not doing that yeah if you don't have that ability like short-term success is your ceiling basically yeah and often you don't even get that so an example of that craig teven said that uh i'll read this quote this is from a ian head sun herald column when i went down to breakfast on the morning before the game fatty said to me the score is 16 all with 10 minutes to go and teven's on the field like revving him up at the breakfast table. And the other part of that is knowing when to inspire and pump people up and when to release the tension. So as they were in the dressing room about to head out for game one, Fatty went up to Terry Cook and offhandedly said, apparently we're getting a good bonus if we win this match, Cookie. I'll tell you what you should do with your bonus. Buy yourself a chest. Buying a body part was everyday parlance in my high yeah. school. <laughs> was it, that was when Fatty told the guy on um, Cracker Fatty or something? Yeah, it was Cracker Fat, wasn't it? Okay, the guy, the guy on the footy show's uh, Pluck a Duck River off Cracker Fat, he, was, he pulled his shirt off and um, was dancing around and Fatty told him to buy himself a chest. <laughs> <laughs> that was good humor back then, still is. <laughs> uh, I should say that quote and a lot of other awesome insider content comes from the book Greats of Origin by Neil Cadigan, which is this week's book recommendation. Uh, and the 95 series gets the longest chapter in that whole book, I think because of the story it was. But it's uh, a yeah, really invaluable account for this week's research. So I highly recommend that one. Fantastic. 
So with the coach in place, it was time to pick the team and it really was digging through scraps to try to get 17 blokes uh, eligible and available to play. So we'll start with some veterans. So the captain was Trevor Gilmeister, who was then in his first year at the Crushers. And this is one of those fork in the road kind of stories where he was cut by Brisbane for salary cap reasons at the end of 93 much to the fans, players, and even the coaches discussed that they had to take that step. They only had 14 other internationals, <laughs> yeah. He was close to accepting an offer to finish his career in England before going down to Penrith for a year, uh, walking into that mess of a situation, coming back to Brisbane when the crushes started. When I think of rugby league, Trevor Gilmas is one of the guys I think about. So small, that tackling, it looks like a 60-year-old bar fly when he was 30. He's the type of bloke you could see a head like that in every kangaroo picture from 1908 <laughs> yeah, onwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, country wood-chopping style yeah. head. <laughs> and when he was named as captain, he became only the fourth captain Queensland Origin had had after Wally, Paul Vorton, and Mel Meninga. It goes down in folklore as the, as the greatest probably yeah. like, for that effort. And I'm not going to oversell it that, oh, if they didn't have the axe, they wouldn't have won the series. You know, like he was in his last days as a player. But what seeing him in that lineup gave you was credibility. But with him and Fatty, they were best mates, you know, joined at the hip, same personalities, uh, both bought into Queensland's yep. tradition more than anybody. I think without him, they would have struggled. That's it. I think you needed someone at the top who'd been there and probably still would have been there in the team, even with the Super League players. Yeah. The other experienced player they had was Gavin Allen, who famously was picked from Brisbane reserve grade to play Origin, was the only Bronco to not go to Super League. The fact that he was playing Brisbane reserve grade probably tells you that he was coming to the end of his run as a representative player, but he played five games of Origin between 91-92, a mixture of Injury and suspension kept him out for 93 and 94. Plenty of suspension. So uh, another type of player you needed in that team. But when I think about Gavin Allen in the context of this series, it is his unique situation in the Super League war that you think of first. And the reason, part of the reason that he didn't sign with Super League in the first place was that he ran a printing business and that at that stage of his career, took up most of his time. So he was a bit out of the loop with the Broncos, not hanging around after training, just going back, looking after his business. How funny is that? The second job in that era, like, I'm going to lose me overtime if I go to Super League, you know? <laughs> and so he felt out of the loop and basically wasn't told of what was happening when all the, the Super League signings were going on. He had to ring up Wayne Bennett and say, what's the go? Is anyone going to talk to me? So he already had a bit of taste in his mouth about Super League. So, so they were thinking, just let him retire. I think it was more just an oversight because he wasn't around right. as, as much. So maybe he was just a bit of an outsider within that team at that point. It's a bit crook, isn't it? It is. And then when he actually saw the Super League contract and the stipulation that he could be forced to play anywhere potentially, obviously he's got a bit of a bad feeling about his future at the Broncos. He decided that he wasn't in a position to be able to play anywhere because he had his business and his family to think of, so didn't sign with Super League. But nor did he sign with the ARL. And in fact, he was the only player who didn't sign with either camp. He wasn't interviewed by Rugby League Week then for the poll. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
that was a curious little thing in itself. It is. You didn't have to be signed by the ARL to play Origin just as long as you weren't signed with Super League. <laughs> That's a amazing tidbit. Yeah, and the Origin selectors actually called him up and said, what's the go? You're in the team if you haven't signed with Super League. And he said, well, I haven't, but I haven't signed with the ARL either. And they said, that's all right, just don't sign. Now, is that the selectors doing a reverse rowdy? <laughs> yeah. Calling the player up? Yeah. Well, I remember on the footy show, sometime after Fatty had been announced at coach, Gordon Tallis was on the panel. And obviously, you know, St. George fan, big Gordon Tallis fan for the short term, the, the next <laughs> year, not so much. Um, I remember Fatty talking about Gordy like he was a sure thing for the team and going, can you kick goals? And, <laughs> and I, I was actually put at ease by it. I was thinking, oh, sweet. Yeah. Gordon Tallis. And then maybe like a week later, he signed with Super League. <laughs> I told you that I was at the Knights game where he headbutted the Knights player and it sent off. Oh, really? I was like 20 yards from Yeah. Him. It was terrifying look in his eyes when he <laughs> got sent off. He didn't even connect. That's not <laughs> a send off. Not his go. <laughs> So I think that story of the ARL selectors calling him up shows you, A, the fact they were reaching to the bottom of the barrel, but B, the importance of those hardheads in that team. And Gavin Allen was actually with his friend and former teammate Mark Hone when the teams were announced and said to him, Honey, are you looking at this? I don't know who the hell we've got here. Mate, I think we're going to get flogged. And then Mark <laughs> Hone said, How do you think I feel? I could only make the bench. <laughs> I was a big Mark Hearn fan. Had a cult look about him. Another great rugby league head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the final veteran I want to talk about is the aforementioned Rowdy Shearer, who played 5-8 in the first game, was injured. And in fact, Jason Smith coming in for Dale Shearer in games two and three was the only change Queensland made throughout that series. You didn't lose anything there. Two great players. No. It's just such a luxury to have Rowdy because like, we haven't got a 5-8. So we'll let Rowdy, thank God. Exactly. Uh, playing his 25th origin. Yeah. You want to talk about the comfort of having Gilmeister there, the comfort of Rowdy, that, all that experience and class. Although that could be a double-edged sword. And there's a couple of quintessential Rowdy quotes that, <laughs> that I, I want to give you. Uh, so Wally Lewis was talking about Shearer's mercurial nature and said, when he runs onto the football field, he should have a question mark on his back. Some of the things he's done over the years make you shake your head in amazement. Then there's been other things when you just shake your head. <laughs> and talking about his training. Just when we'd be expecting Rowdy to chime in, there'd be empty space. We'd look around and he'd be upfield practicing his chip kick, sidestep or whatever. Wayne never did his block. He just used to stare at the ground, then mutter something like, don't worry, just leave him. He'll be right on the night. <laughs> I love those guys that refuse to train. Him and Bar. <laughs> and just like... Awesome players on the field. And, and again, the love he had for playing for Queensland, that's there in his annual calls to the selectors. And it's there when he did get ruled out for game three. So Jason Smith actually came out and said, if he's available, I think Dale should go in up before me. He was there. He did the job in game one. So it's only fair that he's picked ahead of me if he's fit. Unfortunately, he was eventually ruled out and broke down at training. Paul Vorton said it was the first time he'd seen him cry. Tragic. But this series was pretty much the making of Jason Smith as that class ball player yeah. in the public side anyway. Yeah. So I want to talk about the rookies in that team now, but I, I guess we should name the team in full. So have you got that squad in front of you? I do, yeah. At fullback, Robbie O'Davis, wing Brett Dallas, centres Mark Coyne and Danny Moore, 
Other wing, Matt Singh. Halves, Dale Shearer and Adrian Lamb of Papua New Guinea. Front row, Gavin Allen, Wayne Bartram, Tony Hearn. Back row, Trevor Gilmeister, Gary Larson, Billy Moore. Bench, Terry Cook, Ben Eichen, Mark Hone and Craig Teven. Coached by Paul Fatty Vorton. And as I said, you can sub out Dale Shearer for Jason Smith in games two and three, and that's basically the squad throughout the series. And we'll start with Ben Eichen, whose appearance in, in the lift uh, at the first <laughs> training camp is probably the most iconic moment in that whole series. So Eichen was directed to go to the sixth floor of the team hotel in Brisbane and was in the lift with Paul Vorton and Matt Singh. And when they got off at level six, they walked out and... Ben Eichen, in his words, dressed in uh, a backwards cap, a T-shirt and a pair of boardies, walked out behind them and Fatty turned around and said, oh, mate, players only. We'll, we'll be down later if you want to get an autograph in the lobby. <laughs> uh, and Ben Eichen had to say, oh, I'm in your team. I'm, I'm Ben Eichen. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> and I love, I love the way uh, Eichen tells it. He just gave a bit of a head wobble, his cheeky smile and said, okay, come on in then. <laughs> To get a head wobble in person would be great. I remember seeing him on the news and hearing that story and, you know, he played five first grade games or something and being just disgusted, going, this is what Origin is, is it? The best of the best? I think I was captivated by the story that I, I wasn't as disgusted. I mean, I like Ben Eichen now uh, a lot as a commentator and analyst, but at the time I think he looks like he works in a server. Yeah. <laughs> he really did. Or no, I, th- I think more like Pizza Haven. <laughs> Eagle boys, <laughs> my, my alma mater. <laughs> so yeah, he played three first grade games, well, one off the bench, so four games in total. Uh, and it was actually Arthur Beetson who tipped Fatty off, uh, Fatty and the selectors off about him. Uh, he got a good glimpse of him at the previous year's origin when he was playing in the under-19s alongside Darren Lockyer in the halves and was a stand-up performer there. Who was at seven? Lockie was at seven. Wow. Yeah. And then the fullback. So Beetson actually called up Paul Vorton and said, there's a kid down on the Gold Coast named Ben Eichen who's going to be a good player. And Fatty said, I said, good, I'll take him. And headed for the door. <laughs> so Eichen was at home watching the announcement, not to hear his own name, but just to see if they were going to go through and not pick Super League players. When he heard Ben Eichen, his dad actually called him up and asked if there was another Ben Eichen playing on the Gold Coast. <laughs> That's my mum would do. It can't mean you can. But then gave the famous quote that's been repeated in a number of publications but said, your body belongs to Queensland now, son. Oh, wow. So it was one of the great stories at the time, him getting selected. And he wasn't a standout, but he did a good job in a winning team. But he, in the aftermath, didn't have the emotional maturity to deal with it. And in fact, put on 14 kilos over the course of the season and ended the year in reserve grade. We have more in common than I thought. <laughs> uh, in all fairness, he was a rake at origin time. And went on to play 17 games for Queensland, which is surprising. It is surprising because he was like hurt early on. Yeah. Uh, in an admiral display of candor, said that he viewed his own origin career as somewhat underwhelming and thought he played more games than he would have got otherwise because of a lack of depth at times in Queensland. Yeah, agreed. But still, what a career. Yeah. And and as you said, I, I think he's a really good analyst. I, I really like what he has to say about the game. Yeah. So the, the next bloke that would definitely not have been in the team otherwise was Craig Teven, 
So he was at the Crushers at the time, had actually been kicking around the league since about 1990, uh, playing for the Broncos in predominantly reserve grade, coming down to Cronulla, playing at Manly, but only a few first grade games. He'd spent the bulk of his career in reserve grade. I seem to remember that he had. He was known for having talent. It was going to kick on at some point. That was the, the, the rap on him. Yeah, yeah. And so he had a meteoric rise in 1995 where he started the season as the Crushers' halfback, but was dropped to the reserves two games later, spent a month in reserve grade, came in at hooker for an injured Wayne Collins, and three weeks later, he's in the origin team. Wow. And the way he got in was that at Crushers' training, word had got around that selectors were going to be there and were going to be looking for good performances because they needed to fill a team. Uh, And I mean, think about that. That's like regional selections for... Junior sport. Yeah, he, he wore odd-coloured socks. To- <laughs> it was at the gala and he performed well. <laughs> so in his words, I think I topped the tackle count with something like 60 tackles and just played my heart out. I really wanted to play Origin. It had been a dream all through my life. These stories make your heart swell. It's like these guys would never have got there otherwise and they got this memory. That's awesome. And so he never played for Queensland again after 95, uh, but was the captain of the Crushers the following year. Uh, played in their last ever game. A year after that, came off the bench in the Gold Coast Chargers' last ever game, which kind of sums up the era and and his place in it. It's something fitting about that. Yeah. And the other one who was perhaps the most anonymous of all was Terry Cook. When I read the team, I, I literally didn't know who he was. So he was another one that had just bounced around playing reserve grade. He didn't make a senior rep side in Toowoomba until he was 22. So unlike Tevin, who had a rap on him from an early age, he probably did more than anyone expected him to do. Got the start at the Crushers only because Bob Linder called him and said that he was trying to get Richie Blackmore, the Kiwi international, to come over from Leeds. But if he didn't come over, there was a spot at the Crushers. Uh, So it all fell into place. He got the last spot in the squad. It sounds like an older player's name, Terry Cook. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess he was... About 30 by the time... Yeah, but like, it sounds like a sort of 70s name, yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a 95 name. And so, again, he'd been given the word that the selectors were going to be there and said, I thought I'd have a crack here and was lucky enough to score two tries and close to top the tackle count. I thought, well, I've given it my best shot. If it happens, it happens, but I'm not holding my breath. That's the reason why, the crushes. I just didn't see any crushes. Hardly. Yeah, because, again, there was only two or three games a week on TV, so yeah. you very rarely did see the crushes. Yeah. And with their other rookies, they had to get a bit creative. So Wayne Bartram was the first of those. Born and raised on the New South Wales North Coast, came up through the Tweedhead Seagulls junior system and until he played for the Gold Coast up until 94, had never lived in Queensland. (laughs) That sounds like their MO. (laughs) And actually came into calculations because his club chairman and New South Wales manager, Jeff Carr, told Queensland they should consider picking Wayne Bartram. So <laughs> did them a solid there. <laughs> this is sliding doors on Blake's origin careers. And you wonder where Bartram's career ends up if he didn't get the nod in 95? All I think about from game 195 is Wayne Bartram. Yeah. Until I watched it this week. <laughs> it was just like that goal was just... I forgot that he was at hooker even. I didn't forget that because, you know, obviously as a St. George fan, watched him at lock and he was... Good player. He, he was a really good player. Wholehearted could surprise you. Like he scored the individual try of the year against Canberra in the semi finals later that year. Goal kicker. Goal kicker. 
Not a hooker. No. That was in an era when manufacturing hookers was a rare thing. Yeah. Mark Soden did it to effect not many others. Yeah, it really stood out in that era. It w- wasn't something that was regularly done, especially not with locks or back rowers. Yeah, these days everyone can slot in. Yeah. But he's one of those players that even though you associate him with this era as an ARL origin player, he went on to play, I think it was nine origins, and you know his origin career went through to 99. So I don't know if he gets that origin career without the start in 95, but he certainly maxed out his potential. Yeah. The other selection was even more creative, and I know you've got some strong thoughts on this, Adrian Lamb. It's just Shanks. I love Adrian Lamb. Really good player. So obviously a Papua New Guinean international wasn't eligible to play for Australia because of that and somehow got into the Queensland team. There's always this um, this feeling, oh, you know, it's Queensland, they haven't got as many players as us, let them bend the rules, they can take GI, they can take Adrian Lamb from New Guinea. The next thing, they've won bloody eight series. It's like, I've got a whole thing about the sanctity of origin and I think that was a terrible move. And we're, it's still causing problems 25 years later. Yeah. It's like this precedent that somehow you can just cite Adrian Lamb. and <laughs> Which is the um, anomaly of all anomalies. Because if you open up the floodgates to Englishmen and Kiwis and whatever else you got, then you just got an all-star game. No one's going to play as hard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but a meteoric rise for Adrian Lamb that season, that was the year that they got John Simon in from Illawarra. And everyone thought that John Simon would be starting... Roosters halfback for that year and, and thereafter, but Adrian Lamb made it impossible for him to lose his job. Yeah, really good player. <laughs> the recipient of the biggest hit of all time from Ruben Wickey yeah. and bounced straight <laughs> up. Tough tough guy. Uh, and again, it was some New South Wales connections that got him into the team with Phil Gould, actually. <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> because we'll get to how the series played out. Gary Larson won man of the series and rightly so, like a superhuman effort, but they do not win that series without Adrian Lamb at halfback. Yeah, for sure. Really stamped his class. And again, another player who went on with it. And obviously he had Alan Langer ahead of him for the next few years. If he'd come along a couple of years after that, like yeah, like the path was wide open for him. Absolutely. But I mean, looking back on it, it's more egregious back then because you didn't have playing internationals for minnows and then coming back to uh, Australia like you can do now. An international was an international back then. Yeah. Even though it was New Guinea, it was still an international. And I think it it was just filed under the, you know... Casualties of war, yeah, that one. Exactly. <laughs> it's just that, okay, well, it's not ideal, but what are we going to do? Yeah. Happy for him, though. At least he's not a... So with the squad in place, it was time to get the team together and believing. And so at the first training session, Fatty decided to tell them what Origin was all about, gave a a long speech about the passion of Queensland and him remembering going to games at Lang Park in the 70s where they get flogged 50-0, but they'd score a try and 35,000 Queenslanders would be on their feet and you know, and you never stop believing and, and all the rest of it. A speech so inspiring that Mario Fennick, who happened to be there because it was at the Crushers training facility, said he was very passionate, but he made a lot of sense as well. I tell you, he was that good. I almost wanted to play for them myself. <laughs> Uh, and then after Fatty was done and all the players in the room said that he had us, you know, five minutes in, we, you know, go over the wall for him, you know. Uh, he got Chris Close up. He said, Chop, get up and tell them what it means to play for Queensland. And in Chris Close's words, well, these guys were by this stage hanging on every word being spoken in the room and you could just see the emotion that was there. 
So I stood up and it just overwhelmed me. My lips swelled up like a pork sausage. I went to speak and I couldn't get any words out. The tears shot down my cheeks and I just sat down. Fatty said, well, you're a great help. <laughs> uh, but the the passion in the room meant that Chris Close, once he regathered his faculties, went to the phone and called his wife and said, mortgage the house, get as much money as you can and back this team. They'll not get beaten. Wow. This is what's beautiful about this story, the origin spirit. The reason why it's so successful is that everybody means it. 100% authentic. Although it is to this day widely derided and after the game one victory, Paul Voughton had something to say about the people who doubt the Queensland spirit. I tell you what, people say the Maroon spirit is a wank, but I saw plenty of evidence of it out there. Hell yeah. And that leads to the age-old question of are Queenslanders innately more passionate than New South Wales? Paul Voughton in his book says that I'm always asked that and it's simple, we're not. And I think at heart that's true. I think... New South Wales want to win as much as Queensland do. And the balance of power is decided by the talent available for the most part. I think the underdog status until recent dynasties created that edge on passion. Yeah, but I think it had started to run its course by the 90s. And this one series is an anomaly, you know. Uh, And then going into the early 2000s when New South Wales were dominating. Yeah, there wasn't too much spirit then. Yeah. So I think it it is kind of disingenuous to talk about this great Queensland spirit and all the rest of it. What, in the years where they lost, did they not have the spirit? Well, when they were getting beat 48 to 12, whatever it was, and Girdler scored off the kickoff. Yeah. That was question marks on the spirit then, but that was just an outclassing, I think. But the thing about it is, with New South Wales, it's always tell, not show. New South Wales players always have to talk about how they're just as passionate. Yeah. Whereas Queensland, it's never in doubt. Well, to me, honestly, like I think they are more passionate just because of the history and the underdog status. I tend to agree. I, I guess where I uh, come down on is I don't think the passion generally has as much bearing on results as some people put it down to. Well, it had bearing on this result. Oh, yeah, without doubt. And it does come down to the spirit more than anything else in this series. And I think that's something you see all throughout the quotes I've gathered for the episode. If that underdog status wasn't already strong enough among the Queensland team, it was made even stronger by the fact that they were kind of rejected by that their own statesmen uh, with the Queensland public in the eyes of the team not really getting behind them as they had previously. Can you blame them though? They went from Langer and all the rest of it, you know. Yeah, but I mean, I thought it's this great Queensland, you know. Like... <laughs> there's, there's a limit. <laughs> so Gavin Allen was saying that they were out at a, club in Brisbane on the first night of bonding and a few punters started to take aim at the imposters. I remember someone was putting shit on one of the young fellows saying, you aren't fucking Queensland, it should be Langer, Willie Kahn and Michael Hancock and Steve Renoff, you're imposters. That's nice of them. And then coming back for game three, they were returning heroes once again with, <laughs> with all the, the fans wanting to, you know, get autographs and all the rest of it again. But it's so funny, like you meet one drunk girl in a nightclub and that's represents the whole state you know like <laughs> <laughs> but then i think there is, is also the the courier mail readership i'm sure there were some <laughs> some letters coming in and... that's a point i mean imagine what queensland talkbacks like mm, yeah. we, we, we know how bad <laughs> blues talkback is so in the lead up to the game everyone was expecting new south wales to demolish queensland and that was even within the new south wales team so 
Paul Harrigan in his book said that one morning after breakfast, they were at the hotel restaurant and it was the first time I'd given any real thought to our Queensland opponents. I couldn't help but think that New South Wales were headed for a clean sweep of the series. Many others shared my opinion. Yeah. Uh, everyone believed that. But when Paul Harrigan, one of the leaders of the team, can see that complacency in his own game, it's, I don't know, I wonder if Gus even was pushing the message as hard as he should should have been. I reckon it all started with Gus. That's what I would suggest. Yeah. He's that sort of guy, you know. Smug, you know, type bloke. Yeah, we're gonna get three and Yeah, exactly. And as much as we want to say that the New South Wales debutants were bigger names or had brighter futures than the Queensland debutants, they were still nine debutants. And what you don't need coming in is for the senior players in the team to be going like, "Oh, we got this." So, if I had to guess, I'd say it was not going through the motions, but just eighty-five percent to ninety percent, and that yep. in origin. Is all you need. Yeah, exactly. And the bookmakers agreed with Queensland being given 19.5 points start. That must be the biggest start ever in origin. You'd have to think so. So a, a lot of the so a lot of the Queensland squad thought that was too good an offer to pass up. Of course, uh, betting on matches was <laughs> not the issue it became <laughs> at this stage. So in the lead up to game two, Fatty was asked how he thought about Queensland still being considered underdogs after their game one win. And he said, I'm disappointed. I got nine to two about us last time. This time we've come in half a point. I've taken the fours, but hopefully we'll blow out again so I can have another go. <laughs> Imagine that today. <laughs> And then there was some uh, inter-team betting going on as well, so I'll let Billy Moore tell the story. We were at Percy's Pub across the road from North Sydney Oval when the teams were announced, and when Flo saw our team, he started laughing. He started saying, look at your team, they're nobodies. We're going to smash you. Well, that was enough to get me going, and I said, cold, clean, clear. 500 bucks says you don't. He said, no worries, and I said, beautiful. We won the first game in Sydney, and 7am the next morning, I get a call from Flo, and he says, double or nothing. I said, beautiful. We're in. Then we won the second game and I'm waiting for the call the next morning, but nothing came. So I start calling Greg because I knew we were going to win three in a row. It took me three days to get hold of him because his wife had rung him and said, do not take another bet. So I got a check for a thousand bucks from Flo at 9am the next day and I ran straight to the bank and cashed it just in case it bounced. (laughs) (laughs) But just going back to the not taking the game seriously, Flo sitting with Billy Moore talking about his team being nobodies. Yeah, yeah. Neville's probably. <laughs> so we'll get to game one and a, a famous 2-0 victory for Queensland. So Wayne Bartram kicked the goal 30 minutes into the game and, and that was where the scoring ended. Some points out of that game though, we both watched it this week prior to recording. So much fun to go back. The game was far closer to the, to the current game than I remembered. I figured it was going to be like an alien life form, but it was quite a similar, just slower pace that was all yeah i was quite impressed by that but the violence of that era paul harrigan has this swinging arm on brett dallas it would have taken his head off his shoulders and it was just like oh there's a swinging arm yeah yeah. (laughs) i actually thought this was probably the weakest game of the series it was yeah it was slow it was scrappy yeah there's like terrible um percentage plays chip and chases that were accepted back then you could Mm. just do a chip and chase on the second tackle and that was fine yeah I guess the the standout for me was what I mentioned earlier, just how in their shells the Johns brothers were. Well, I noticed Matthew, and, and he's coaching on players these days, he's always played direct at the line, played direct at the line, but he was very indirect and across the line, and that was a problem. Yeah. Noticeable to me while I was watching it. But the takeaway of many people from this game and what is my 
biggest takeaway from the series and what gave this chapter its title is Billy Moore walking out for the second half, screaming out Queenslander as he came through the tunnel. We talked about it for another hundred years. I remember watching that live. Me too. And thinking, is this guy a lunatic? What, what's going on? What, what is he doing here? I remember watching it and being like almost embarrassed, thinking, oh, people aren't liking this. He's going to stop in a minute. And then, and then hang on. They are liking it and it's <laughs> pumping them up and sort of switch from yeah. the start to the end of it. And it's become one of those iconic moments. Career-defining moment for a great player. Mm. And in fact, the, the Queenslander call had actually been introduced by Paul Voughton and Gary Belcher during an origin in 87. So they were on the line defending as the Blues were on the attack and started calling it out to inspire them. I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. So, But it wasn't Paul Voughton in his role as coach telling Billy Moore to do that. Billy Moore had actually been told by when he made his debut in 1992, Peter Jackson told him about it in a little spiel about what it meant to be a Queenslander. Wow. So I think it was stored in, in Billy Moore's brain. And, and as he was walking out, now one of the, the senior men and one of the guys that had to step up, it, it just came out. There's never been a more apt time for that to come out. Yeah. And so in the wash-up, I think a really astute quote came from Gavin Allen. He said, looking back, if they didn't win the first game, they probably would have been thrashed the next two. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think that's how it would have played out. Just a, a strong effort, but just can't quite get over the line. And then having to start again, regroup, one down. I don't think that team could have gone on with it. So it was crucial to, to win that game. Absolutely. And the funny thing is with that, game one victory you could see a team like that that being their grand final and then the class of new south wales taking care of business in the next two games well everybody expected it yeah to a man yeah um paul voughton came out in the aftermath saying that he's had one of the best weeks of his life and uh it's just been a fantastic week and you can see with that kind of talk that's how it often plays out the fact that they did it three nil if it was two one it wouldn't be as legendary yeah three nil Maroon wash. <laughs> it just, yeah, the whole series are up for it. So Paul Voughton took the opportunity to settle some scores with former Manly coach Graham Lowe, who he blames in part for his exit from Manly after the 89 series uh, when Lowe was incoming coach for 1990. And in the dressing room afterwards with reporters around him, he said, tell Graham Lowe, ah, uh, tell him nothing. He's just a Neville anyway. <laughs> Really got him. And so I was I was looking into the the low Paul Voughton feud because again it's not something you you really hear that often. People like publicly calling other people out and you know going after them calling like that. Calling them Yeah. Uh, and it made me think that Manly's one of those clubs where outsiders always struggle. Definitely. Like as a region, it's the Insular Peninsula, and the football club has some of that same DNA. Oh, definitely. So it wasn't just. Uh, Fatty who had a problem with Graham Lowe Rex Mossop a couple of years before the 95 Origin was on the the Sunday footy show and was asked about how Manly had turned their season around and Mossop said I give Fulton a lot of credit it's partially Fulton partially having got rid of the other guy no names no pack drill as if it could have been anyone else (laughs) at this stage there's no point criticizing people that have got a health problem so Lowe, of course, had to step down with a life-threatening blood clot. Doesn't want to embarrass the bloke. <laughs> and uh, he was reminded, probably by Fatty, that he at the club's annual meeting, 
he'd given Graham Lowe some criticism. Mossop said, I didn't mention his name. I mentioned the coaching. <laughs> but so in Fatty's words, he'd seen Graham Lowe in New Zealand during an Australian test match in 89 and, and said, what's happening you know, you know, next year? You want me? And Graham Lowe said, yep, as far as I'm concerned, you're a class player and you'll be in my team. And, and then... Well, I said not- he was a test player. I remember the series. A, he was coming to the end of his run as a top player. Um, so when it was all falling out at Manly, Fatty went up to Terry Randall, to who was on the board, to say, you know, what's happening? And he said, hey, Igor, let me ask you one question. How would you have liked it if the club had treated you this way after 11 years? And Terry Randall said, I wouldn't have let it get to this, Fatty. I wouldn't have hung on as long as you. I would have got out. Look at you. You're nearly gone. <laughs> Terry Randall, straight shooter. So there was that. He was losing it as a player, but then he was also acting out against Manly management. So in one game, they were asked to make sure they went through the ADT banner to run out onto the field. And so Fatty got the team together and say, everyone, no one run through the banner. And and just little (laughs) stuff like that. But I mean, that's really surprising me that you can be uh, playing for Australia in 89 and then you're gone as a player. I think it happens though quite often. Just fell off a cliff type thing. Yeah. And, you know, in your words, Australian selectors jerk off to incumbency. (laughs) (laughs) They do, and they did. So that was just a little aside. So let's get to game two. So, of of course, New South Wales ringing in the changes. Some forced selections through injury and suspension uh, and also some players dropped. So have you got the game two squad there? Yeah, there's a host of changes for the Blues. As you said before, Jason Smith for Shearer in the Queensland team. The Blues... Hopper Whitey replaced Craig Hancock on the wing. Fittler went to 5'8 for Matthew Johns. Dean Pay replaced Mark Carroll at prop. Florimo replaced Brad Mackay as a second rower. Barnhill replaced Steve Menzies. Brad Mackay replaced Fittler at lock. And Menzies went back to the bench. And Brett Rodwell went to the bench. The Rodwell selection's a, a bit odd. Like I guess he was replacing Matt Sears. I don't know what Rodwell offered in that role compared to someone like Sears who had a bit of X factor to him. I think that was like pick your best players and then fit them in Yeah, theory. Yeah. And didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> the notable one there, of course, is Dean Pay, who wasn't considered for game one because he was then a Super League player and was basically rushed in to the team for game two. Amazing. So as someone said at the time, a signal to other players in the league that all will be forgiven if you come back. Yeah. And so Queensland went into game two trying to desperately hang on to that underdog tag and really building up the spite aspect of it. So at, at one press conference, they arrived and then turned their backs on New South Wales and, and walked out, <laughs> leading to bemusement by Phil Gould, but Paul Wharton saying, it's a state of war. We don't like those blokes too much. We'll drive them into the ground on Wednesday night. A general origin point, watching the coverage from 95, I really hated the cockroach costume. And yeah, the, and the, I hate the nicknames Cane Toad and Cockroach. It's fine for on the hill, but to officially have them, yeah, I don't know about that. Although I prefer that to when was it Gould who tried to get Bluey the cattle dog? 
yeah, I'd rather have the cockroach. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm with it's you gross. there. <laughs> Before we get the game, I also wanted to talk about the the spectacle of it because I read in a Roy Masters column, uh, I'll just read this. A military theme preceded the game, setting the tone for the war which followed. Moving fingers of light darted into the sky, paratroopers landed and pink and blue smoke. Two helicopters hovered only 50 metres above the playing field and commandos abseiled from the light towers. Vera Lynn saying, we'll meet again, a fitting song for the final game at Suncorp Stadium. I didn't get around to actually checking this to see whether like Roy was just spinning a, you know, kind of elaborate metaphor, but like Vera Lynn singing, we'll meet again. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've seen Stranger <laughs> pre-matches. So. I guess it, it was the, the 50th anniversary of the end of World War Two. Yeah. You know, vi- victory over Europe is around the time maybe that was... Virulin's tied into rhyming slang. <laughs> also, it's a connection with the rugby league. I looked her up. You know, she's still still alive, 104 years old. She is. Yeah. So, uh, if you're listening, Vera, <laughs> she almost certainly is. <laughs> and, and so, the big talking point in the build-up to the game was that there was going to be a fight. So it was leaked to the press early in the week that the first scrum there was going to be a fight. <laughs> I loved leaked fights, almost like a schoolyard. And this was telegraphed, as I said, from about a week out. Uh, and we got it. And it was a, a pretty good fight at that. How do you think they start? Do you think it's like an official going, well, I've heard from a bloke in their camp that they're going to start it in the first scrum. And then someone goes back to them and says, I've heard from their camp. Yeah, yeah, that's how it started. So it, it got back to the Queensland camp that the first time New South Wales heard someone say Queenslander, it was on. And then at which point at training, about 10 blokes volunteered to call out Queenslander in the first scrum. <laughs> But watching it, you could tell it was pre-planned because of how quickly they all squared off. Yeah. It was like the scrum fell apart. Everyone picked a player. And you don't really see that one-on-one combat. It was ice hockey-ish. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I don't want to harp on it, but watching it this week, the potential of fighting it adds a whole another dimension that we... I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that it's gone, but good thing for health, but almost it creates an anxious feeling in the air. This one, I think because of how much it was talked about in the lead up, it went a bit too far. And at that point, they had to have the fight to release that tension. But yeah. you could hear in the commentary, Rab's going, expectations of high drama in the first scrum. They're talking the first scrum could be a blow up. <laughs> <laughs> like that was on the live commentary. Is it pro wrestling or what? Everyone knows. <laughs> Funny, uh, Rab's mentioned in commentary in game one, uh, mentioned Super League just casually. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't thought that would have been allowed. But I know. Yeah, like you'd think, let's take the focus away from that. I think it's great broadcasting to turn the elephant in the room, but I was surprised to hear it. Yeah. So there was a lot of debate as to whether the fight was premeditated. So Paul Harrigan came out and said, nothing was premeditated. It just ignited from the sheer tension. There was no lead up to it because it just happened. That's why it couldn't have been premeditated. <laughs> Sounds like a guy who's premeditated something. And in the same article, when told about the Speaker of the Federal Parliament, Stephen Martin, saying that it was a disgrace, he said, there are people who are going to say we're setting a bad sporting example and they have a right to say that. But none of us condone what went on. <laughs> it does show that Gould was taking game too serious. Yeah, and any doubt about whether it was premeditated was put to rest in a video that's on YouTube uh, where the players involved are talking about it. And Joey came out and said, Gus said, if you want to get it on, do it early. So it was organized pretty much by the players, first scrum. I can remember the night before the game, I was in Paul Harrigan's room, just so excited. There's going to be a big brawl. And then I started thinking, hang on, what if one of the front rowers grabbed me? And she said, don't worry, I'll look after you. 
where was he at the Jamie Goddard uh, <laughs> situation? <laughs> but last thing on the fight, Eddie Ward didn't stop the clock. So you lost <laughs> about five minutes of game time. Lunacy. They were so liberal with the clock back then. Uh, the other note I had in my notes about the game was just three words, Jason Smith, class. Yeah, got to love that guy. He added so much to that team. Uh, so Queensland, of course, went on to win 20-12. to 12. They were leading 14-12 with less than a minute remaining when New South Wales went over for what they thought was going to be the game-winning try was with a short ball from Brad Fittler to Tim Brasher. It was callback as forward, which line ball probably was forward. I think in today's game, that gets let go. Yeah, but Jason Smith was the next Cliffy, but Cliffy never retired. Yeah. So he was, he was overshadowed <laughs> by Cliffy. Just that time with the ball, beautiful. I think you could make a case for Jason Smith being the player whose legacy is most affected by Super League. Yeah, I agree. Like an absolute class player, has the whole, you know, two years of rep footy with no Super League players. There's an asterisk there. The Being in, in one of those players that went to England prematurely because all the money was drying up as the salary cap came back in, the Super League contracts were ended, and suddenly England was where you go to get the best contracts. Yeah, it's, his career has been messed up. Mm. But without this, he was behind... Langer and Walters. And but he's in, I mean, he made his in, debut in game three, 94. He's on the bench anyway. He's on the bench or starting lock. Yeah. And that last minute try being denied gave one of my enduring memories for all the wrong reasons as a New South Wales fan with Brett Dallas running almost the length of the field to score the game ceiling try after full time. Um, seeing Fatty on the sidelines, jubilant. Yeah. It is one of those images Isn't that it? sticks with you. Brett Dallas was a Ferrari. And so with that, the series was won. They had a game three to play. Uh, as I said, coming back to Queensland as returning heroes. That was a case of just utter shell shock. This team of literal Nevilles beating us 2-0. Well, well, at least we'll win game three, get some pride back. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's the funny thing. Going into game three, you had a dead rubber for Queensland. They'd done all they had to do. They won the series. For New South Wales, this was... A must win. Like New South Wales had so much more to play for. Yeah. And you could see it in the way Freddie talks about it, that that they just couldn't get their attitude right. So he said that during Origin, our blokes spent too much time in casinos and not enough time in each other's company, living the Origin experience. I suppose as captain, I should have taken it upon myself to lay down the law. Certainly the person I blame most is myself. On match eve, Chief Harrigan came into my room and said, we've got Buckley's tonight with this lot. What's going on with them? Don't they know this is state of origin? At that moment, a number of the New South Wales players were at the casino. We just threw up our hands and awaited our fate, which was certain defeat. That's horrific. It is. Again, all roads lead back to gambling in rugby league. But, <laughs> but it's funny that Freddie and Paul Harrigan couldn't have turned that around and dragged them along with them. Like that attitude thing, that's something that like you'd hope they'd have some power and influence to... Do something about it. But, but how old was Freddie then? He was like in his early 20s and he was a, a lair. Yeah. Like yeah. bad choice. Yeah. Still, you make the point, Chief's there. Yeah. He's not a guy to say no to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would have thought that Matthew and Andrew Jones would have respected Chief more if, if they were involved in the yeah, yeah. hijinks. Um, I mean, Joey had been dropped for game three, so he wasn't there. Adam Muir was there. Yeah. But when you think about it from the Queensland side of things, like how much focus it would take to go into that game three with the right attitude and playing hard. 
But let's not overlook the fact that they played the entire series with one change. Yeah. Has that ever happened before? Like that's unheard of. Yeah. One injury. Yeah. And and no form changes. And when you say one injury, that's one injury that kept a player out. But of course, you know, they were playing hurt. So in game two, Billy Moore busted his ribs and was in the dressing room, was in the dressing room at halftime in no position to go back out. He was getting painkillers, but the doctor said, no, you know, there's no way you're going back out. And Billy Moore started crying there in the dressing room. So Fatty got the rest of the team to come down and said, look at this bloke. He's got three broken ribs. He's had eight needles and he wants to go back out on the field to play with you blokes, but he's not allowed to because there's danger he could get a serious injury. But look at him crying. That's how desperate he is to get out there with you blokes to win. Wow. And going into game three, Trevor Gilmeister was in hospital with an infection that he got after he got cut on the field. So he was in hospital and the doctors were saying, no way should he be playing. Like you could literally die. (laughs) Chris Close said of that, geez, that's no good. But I couldn't think of a better place to die than Lang Park with a Queensland jersey on. (laughs) Which I I love the spirit, but I don't know, dying 40 years down the track, watching your kids grow up, that seems pretty good to me. But this is one of the early, earlier versions of pulling yourself out of the hospital bed to play. Yeah. And in fact, he did pull himself out of the hospital bed to play, chaired off the field, all the rest of it, had to miss the celebrations because he was required back at the hospital and put back on a drip. <laughs> Legendary. But back to that focus, the analogy I come back to is when we won the series in 2014 after eight years, I went to a mate's place for game three and from the moment we arrived, it was just a party. Like we didn't even watch the game really because all the tension was off. There was none of this like edge of your seat. Like yeah, we've yeah. got to win this. Yeah, yeah. And I think most of the New South Wales team in that game took it the same kind of way. You can tell yourself that you want the sweep and you're going to play as hard. But as you're saying in origin, it, it's percentages. It, it's percentages. Yeah. So it, to me, going 3-0 is... It's unbelievable. Yeah. And fittingly, it was Billy Moore who was left holding the ball at full time in game three, taking a tackle down on his knees and then jumping for joy. There's no more fitting player, him and yeah. Larson. Yeah. So as I said, Larson, man of the series, deservedly so. I think it was 50 tackles in the first game when that wasn't a thing that was done no. in that era. No, like 22 tackles was yeah. outstanding. Yeah, because I remember that that was always like the benchmark, Gary Larson's 50 tackles. Yeah. And then so that's always been my framework. And yeah, so now too. you'll see the stat now. It's like, oh, he got 50 tackles. And it's like, you know. They, I think they didn't count many second man in stuff. Yeah, in those yeah, yeah. No, yeah, there's definitely been a change to the way the stats are taken. Well, superhuman at the time. Yeah. So in the aftermath, there was a test team to pick against a full-strength New Zealand team. Brad Fittler was named captain of the Australian team, which after a a 3-0 defeat as heavy favourites with a bloke who was young and inexperienced at leadership, you wonder if that was the right choice, but it became the making of him and seeing him lift the World Cup trophy at the end of the year. Yeah. A, vindicated the selectors, but also it was one of those great moments for rugby league, seeing this guy emerge and become the player he was always supposed to be. Also the Joneses. Yeah. But the big surprise in terms of selections was Paul Harrigan being dropped from the first test team. Well, after the 3-0 drubbing. But, I mean, you'd think you would still get the nod as the incumbent 
known as one of the best front rowers in the game. Your opposition, Gavin Allen and Tony Hearn, yeah, yeah. both being injured. So it wasn't a Queenslander who took his job. It was David Gillespie who'd played no part in the series. Yeah, odd. So in Chief's words, I sought refuge at the Anchorage Resort at Port Stephens, an hour north of Newcastle, to spend some time on my own to reflect on everything that had happened. The CD I was listening to at the time was the Forrest Gump soundtrack. The one song I kept playing was Against the Wind by Bob Seger. The lyrics really summed up the way I was feeling. I played it to myself over and over again, and for the next day or so I thought long and hard about what had happened and how I got myself into that predicament. (laughs) And so in the end it was a Queensland-dominated team in that first test with Brett Dallas, Mark Coyne, Jason Smith, Gary Larson, Wayne Bartram, Danny Moore, Robbie O'Davis and Trevor Gilmeister uh, making up the Queensland contingent. Can we chat about Danny Moore for a bit? Yeah. I love Danny Moore. Underrated for mine. I always thought he was overrated at the time. And to me, he was the ultimate ARL origin player. Unfashionable player as well. Like, he's really rangy and yeah, hard I, to stop. And i got to say, watching the games over the last couple of weeks, I do agree with you. I thought he was pretty class. But talk about a like short career. Like, yeah. I think he played a game or so in like 91 and then became a regular Manly first grader in, I think, 93, 94. And then 97, that was it. He was done. Yeah. And the big story for me was Trevor Gilmeister, who was actually making his test debut, which seems crazy that he hadn't played for Australia before then. For all the guys that got made from this series, like that made him in folklore. He had a few massive hits prior to that, Gilmeister specials as they were known. But um, yeah, this put him into legendary status. I love it for that. Um, funnily enough, in that Neil Cuttingham Greats of Origin book, he says that Bob Fulton liked bigger back rowers. So when Trevor Gilmeister was at the peak of his powers, he was getting overlooked by Bozo. Yeah. And so over the years, the various parties have had the chance to reflect on what happened. And I thought this was a very telling quote from Gus, which says a lot about the way it all happened. I was totally distracted with Super League. I coached poorly during the series and it was a real wake up to me and a reminder of what Origin's about, how it's a contest that can never be taken for granted and a concept that will never die. Everything I've done and believed in for the three previous years, I discarded during that series while Fatty taught us a lesson. I probably assumed everything would be all right at some stage of the series and if we lost one game, it probably wouldn't hurt the series too much because the other side had been written off. But by the end of the series, we couldn't beat them if we tried. And Fatty going down as a Queensland legend, beyond what he'd achieved on the field. Gordon Tallis actually naming him his coach in his best ever Queensland team. I think there might have been some uh, Wayne Bennett issues there (laughs) with not picking him. But was Bennett's record that great for Queensland? I I don't... Because he he came in in like 87 and like won a clean sweep. So I I think it was mixed because he came into that early 90s team that was regularly beaten by New South Wales. Yeah. So it was one of those legendary things. But talk of the time was proven right that this was a recipe built for short-term success. You were never going to be able to take this approach and have it work long-term. So there was no way it would work over the course of a league season. And even in the following year's origin, the it, it showed that the value was limited. He ended up losing five of his next six or his last six origins uh, as New South Wales won the next two series. But 
he's at the red line for three straight games. You know, the engine's on the the verge of blowing. It can't survive. Yeah, and also he was at a bit of a disadvantage because the next year all the Super League players come back in. That's upset the apple cart. Yeah, there. yeah. And we'll get to it when we get to 1996, but apparently there were some behind-the-scenes issues with that Queensland team. And why wouldn't there be with the war still ongoing? It's almost sad, you know. Players that get it done, the unfashionables. It's like, you got to make way for the, uh, the VIPs here, gang. And the lasting thing for that Queensland team is the bond that they built as a team. Fatty was saying that years later, they were at Trevor Gilmeister's wedding. He was sitting at the back with Trevor Cook and Mark Hone and Craig Teven just talking about the 95 series. Mark Hone saying, saying blokes he'd never met became friends for life yeah. because of that first week. That's unreal. There's something magical about it, you know? <laughs> Blokes in Singapore he hadn't met week, week later, they <laughs> friends for life. I know you've had some cynical comments about the legitimacy of this team. And of course, it's farcical. But 25 years later, all we're left with is the record and like an achievement that is unmatched in origin. It's all's well that ends well with this situation. It could have gone the other way, but I don't like the asterisks. But I want to say it doesn't deserve an asterisk. It, it doesn't on the Queensland side, but we've said it through all the Hall of Fames. Guys, rep careers were just derailed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course they were, but... Can't be helped. It's war. There's going to be casualties. There's going to be hero stories. And we've got both in this. Exactly. And I want to read what Paul Vorton said to his team at a reunion years later when there were these question marks and, and ridicule about what they achieved and how they managed to be in the team. No Origin player in history could have given of themselves more than the 95 side did. And after all, that is all Origin is asking of you. It's not asking you how talented you are. It's asking what you're prepared to give, how bad you want it, what you're prepared to sacrifice of yourself in that 80 minutes. And I've come around from your side to my side just over the course of this research where I did see it a bit cynically. And I can't remember the context now, but I remember months ago sending you a text and and the the punchline was Craig Teven. I always viewed it as that like anomaly and looking at these names like Teve and Terry Cook and going, oh, what a joke, fight that 95 team. But then when you actually read about the stories of the players involved and think about the achievement. Yeah, it's monumental, but trying to keep it 100, that's all. But for those guys that may never have got a shot to yeah, go through that. Exactly. And a, a couple of great quotes about that. Craig Teven saying, it was origin. I lived it. I have the jerseys in the cupboard. And the former Origin greats have been outstanding in recognising that. I've got my baggy maroons cap, key ring with my number on it, a little plaque out the front of Suncorp Stadium. It's real for me. Well, it's beyond real. Like, they did it. <laughs> they were thrown in there. Yeah. Nine and a half points start. Exactly. <laughs> it's 3-0. See you later. And Terry Cook. I still get chills about it. It's funny what can happen in life if you never give up working for it. I've told my kids that regularly. Always believe in your dreams and live it. You never know what's around the corner. Some people spend their lives talking about it. Others spend their lives doing it. I got that one shot and will never forget it. See, it's, it's stories like this that make me sound like a Grinch and a dummy, which is accurate. But um, yeah, you, you can't deny that. It's beautiful. Yeah. I got chills then reading it. And I'm going to give the last word to Paul Vorton, who I think deserves it. And this was at a reunion with the players of that 95 team. I've heard people in the media still say it was a fluke, blah, blah. But that's an insult because I saw what you went through. I saw how you sweated and you bled and you hurt to achieve what you did. So wherever you walk, you can hold your heads high as a Queensland rugby league player because you did what you had to do as a Queenslander as well as anyone else ever has. Beautiful. 
So that's this week's chapter. Would especially love to hear some Queenslander thoughts from this one. So your memories at the time, where you come down on this team, is there an asterisk for you or how do you feel about it? But uh, I had a lot of fun researching this one. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I recommend going on to NRL.com and watching the game, game one, uh, magical. Yeah. Okay, and with that, we will get out of here and uh, we've got a special episode for you next week. So uh, look forward to that and we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.